This is the 10th full-length episode of the Chicago History Podcast, and I'd like to thank each and every one of you for listening. In addition to the U.S., we have listeners in France, Singapore, Japan, Vietnam, thanks Rich, United Arab Emirates, China, Canada, India, Spain, Sweden, Netherlands, Israel, and others. Your support means a great deal to us, and we will continue to strive to create content that will entertain and educate. And now, on with this episode. On the previous Chicago First episode, Dave Matthews Band, the first moving walkway, the first policewoman in Chicago, the first football player in history to return the opening kickoff for a touchdown in a Super Bowl game, Greece, talking heads, the first skyscraper in the world, the first automobile race. On that episode, we focus mainly on things that Chicago lays claim to doing before any other city. Today's segment has a bit more of that, but also more historical notes on the first time key events occurred in Chicago. We've got cartoons, sports, music, auto racing, humanitarian services, a ski resort, and more. The first animal cartoon brought to the silver screen was by Chicago Tribune cartoonist Sidney Smith, Old Doc Yak, a tail-coated, wide-eyed billy goat, appeared in a Selig Poliscope series called Seeligettes, starting in July 1913. Note this was 15 years before Steamboat Willie, Walt Disney's predecessor to Mickey Mouse, appeared in film. It was cartoon animal characters like Old Doc Yak who gave animated films a distinct appeal of their own as suitable entertainment for children. I found a full-page ad in the June 7, 1915 Chicago Tribune where readers are asked for ideas for future cartoons. In exchange for those ideas, the paper was giving away $50 a week. That's about $1,300 in today's money for ideas they used. British-born Ben Gordon of the Chicago Bulls was the first ever, and only to date, rookie to win the NBA Sixth Man Award, honoring the league's top player in a reserve role. Gordon appeared in all 82 regular season games of the 2004-2005 season for the Bulls, coming off the bench in 79 of them to average 15.1 points, 2.6 rebounds, and 2 assists per game. Gordon played with the Bulls from 2004 to 2009 and went on to play for other teams before retiring in 2017. Before anyone says, wait a minute, he wasn't the first player on the Bulls to win this award, you're right. In recognition of his efforts during the Chicago Bulls 1995-1996 season, Tony Kukoc was awarded the NBA Six-Man Award, but he was not a rookie like Ben Gordon. Kukoc was six-man to the amazing 1995-96 lineup of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Luke Longley, and Ron Harper. NBA.com's NBA at 50 Top 10 Teams list, published in 2017, lists the 1995-1996 Chicago Bulls with the main five, Kukoc and Steve Kerr, with their 72-10 and record as one of the top 10 teams in NBA history. 
While we're on basketball, according to the Library of Congress, the first five-on-five college basketball game was between the University of Iowa and the University of Chicago on January 18, 1896, at the Iowa City Armory in Iowa City, Iowa. The University of Iowa invited the University of Chicago to play an experimental, that's what they called it, experimental game of five-on-five. Previous to this, games were typically played with between seven and nine players. Final score, Chicago 15, Iowa 12. Sure, it wasn't held in Chicago, but a Chicago university was part of it, and that university was the first to ever win a 5-on-5 college basketball game, so I'm keeping it. The first 500-mile race, or auto derby as it was called, in the Chicago area was held on July 26, 1915. At Speedway Park in Maywood, Illinois, that's about 12 miles straight west of downtown Chicago, this was not the first 500-mile race in the U.S. That would be the Indianapolis 500 held in 1911, but this was the first in Chicago. Writer Ring Lardner, who had a long career as a columnist in newspapers and was a contemporary of Ernest Hemingway, Virginia Woolf, and F. Scott Fitzgerald, covered the event for the Chicago Tribune. It is pretty apparent when reading the article he was not a racing enthusiast. I'll have his article on the Chicago History Podcast Facebook page. Speedway Park, with its two-mile wooden board track, only operated between 1915 and 1918, but has a special place in racing history. According to Stan Kowalsinski of ChicagolandAutoRacing.com, the track was located on 320 acres of farmland just south of 12th Street between 1st and 9th Avenue, with 22nd Street being the ground's southern border. Construction was completed in about 60 days using 14 million feet of lumber supplied by timber titan Edward Hines, 100 carloads of sewer and drain tile, 15,000 concrete piers, 50,000 cubic yards of cement, 500 tons of nails and spikes, 1,000 tons of steel, 2,000 carloads of cinders, and 6 miles of road approaching the park. Early events in the life of the park were said to attract upwards of 80,000 fans, but due to numerous reasons, including the U.S. entering World War I in 1917, attendance continuously fell short of expectations. One ill-scheduled race event coincided with the Chicago White Sox playing the New York Giants in the World Series at Chicago's Comiskey Park on the same day. Rising costs, unpaid bills, and unhappy creditors began to mount. Speedway Park's final race was held on July 28, 1918, just three short years after the track's opening, and included a fire on the track that very nearly burned down the Speedway. Speedway Park eventually declared bankruptcy. The track was dismantled with the property being purchased and donated to the U.S. government by Edward Hines Sr. That's that Edward Hines of Hines Lumber Company uh, for a veterans hospital. This was, after all, right at the end of World War I, although it was originally called the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital Number 76. Rolls right off the tongue. Uh, it was commonly referred to as Speedway Hospital. 
And on October 24, 1921, President Warren G. Harding declared that the facility was to be renamed to honor Edward Hines' son, Edward Jr., who was killed in France during the early part of World War I. It was the first American Veterans Hospital to be named after a person. Widely considered to be the first film studio established by an African-American and featuring all African-American casts, Foster Photoplay Company was started in Chicago in 1910 by William Foster. According to Mark Reed in his 1993 book, Redefining Black Film, Foster had been described as a clever hustler from Chicago. He has been a press agent for the Williams and Walker Reviews and the Cole and Johnson's comedy musical A Trip to Coontown, 1898, a sports writer for the Chicago Defender and occasional actor under the name Julie Jones, and finally a purveyor of sheet music and Haitian coffee. Foster's first productions were the African-American cast comedy shorts The Railroad Porter and The Fall Guy, both released in 1913. As Foster wrote in the December 20th, 1913 issue of the black weekly Indianapolis Freeman newspaper, the Foster Photoplay Company was founded specifically to specialize in, quote, non-degrading black cast comedies, end quote. He went on to note, quote, Nothing has been done so much to awaken race consciousness of the colored man in the United States as the motion picture. It made him hungry to see himself as he has come to be, end quote. Jane Janes, in her 2017 book Fire and Desire, Mixed Race Movies in the Silent Era, credits The Railroad Porter as the world's first film with an entirely black cast and director, and with being the first black newsreel featuring images of a YMCA parade. The Railroad Porter premiered at Chicago's white-owned and black-managed Grand Theater in July of 1913 and had a New York premiere at the Lafayette Theater in September of that year. Foster later toured the South with The Railroad Porter, The Fall Guy, a 1913 detective film called The Butler, and a melodrama called The Grafter, that's Grafter with an A, The Grafter and The Maid, also a 1913 release. According to the 2012 edition of the Encyclopedia of the Harlem Renaissance, edited by Carrie D. Wince and Paul Finkelman, in 1916, Foster began working on a film called Birth of a Race as a response to D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. The film had several wealthy financial backers, including Universal Pictures, Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee Circle, and Julius Rosenwald of Sears and Roebuck, and had taken two years to complete, finally being released in 1918. Despite Foster's dedication and all the money invested, the film was a financial failure. The failure of Birth of a Race caused the company to go deep into debt. The Foster Photoplay Company folded not long after, but should absolutely be recognized for its contributions. Fun fact, around the time of the closure of Foster Photoplay Company, Foster took a job as circulation manager for the Chicago Defender and was helpful in making that newspaper one of the most widely circulated papers among African Americans in Chicago.
Long before the 1972 Miami Dolphins played the first perfect season and went on to win the Super Bowl, the Chicago Bears in 1934 played a 13-0 regular season and became the first NFL team to complete an undefeated regular season without tied games, but lost the 1934 NFL championship game against the New York Giants. Chicago finished the season with a 13-0 record as they outscored their opponents by a whopping 286-86. to The Bears looked to cap the season with another victory over the Giants in the title game. However, the dreams of the NFL's first perfect season went out the window when New York dominated the Bears 30-13 to in the championship game. It may be hard to believe now in 2020, but the Bears suffered just two losing seasons in its first 27 years. Along the way, they claimed seven league championships during that span between 1920 and 1946. Note, the 1934 Bears featured Beatty Feathers, the first 1,000-yard rusher in NFL history. 90s grunge rock band Nirvana's first stop in Chicago was on July 8, 1989 at Club Dreamers, 1516 North Milwaukee Avenue, for their Bleach Tour. The band at the time consisted of Kurt Cobain, Chris Novoselic, Chad Channing on drums, who would later be replaced by Dave Grohl one year later, and second guitarist Jason Everman, who was ousted from Nirvana later that tour, and a year later ousted from fellow Seattle band Soundgarden. In a transcript of the set I found on the interwebs, an unnamed member of the band referred to the Chicago L, that's our public transportation system, called the L as it is elevated, unlike New York's subway system, as the monorail, remarking, quote, it is a lot quieter than regular trains, end quote. Local post-punk band Precious Wax Drippings played after Nirvana. The Nirvana set list included 13 songs. Nirvana would return September 30th of that year to play at Cabaret Metro on Clark Street near Wrigley Field. The first Rotary Club was founded in Chicago in February of 1905 by a Chicago attorney named Paul P. Harris and three business associates who met at the Unity Building at 127 North Dearborn Street, so-called because the men planned to rotate meetings at their respective offices. Within a year, the club grew so large they needed to settle on one meeting spot. The Rotary Club, whose stated purpose, according to their Rotary.org page, is to bring together business and professional leaders in order to provide humanitarian service and to advance goodwill and peace around the world. They have grown to 35,000 clubs worldwide with 1.2 million members. They are a non-political and non-religious organization open to all, and their motto is Service Above Self. To this day, their headquarters is based just north of Chicago in the suburb of Evanston. On Friday, January 5th, 1968, on the site of the closed Cary Brick Company at Diversey and Narragansett in Chicago, the first in-city ski resort in Chicago opened. That's right, a ski resort within city limits. Called Thunder Mountain, it featured 55 skiable acres and a 285-foot slope built on a clay mountain divided into three different runs for beginners, intermediates, and experts, all utilizing tow ropes. 
The owners claim Thunder Mountain had the biggest vertical drop of any ski resort within 200 miles as skiers started at the top of Thunder Mountain and ended in the bottom of the clay pit. Two certified ski instructors were hired. There were plans for a five-story chalet on the diversity side of the property, toboggan runs, an enclosed swimming pool, chairlifts, and a 125-unit motel. The owners had even discussed buying the gondola ride from the recently closed Riverview Park in Chicago and installing it on top of the mountain. The first season did not go well, even with the 12 to 15 snow guns shooting machine-made snow. There was not enough natural snow due to a mild winter. By March of 1968, even though Thunder Mountain was only in operation a few days that season, the owners were still bullish about the future. Unfortunately, the lack of attendance and cost in running the business made this a one-season operation, never to reopen after that first season. The Brickyard Mall opened on the site in March of 1977, an enclosed three-story building. It was beset with problems from early on involving traffic and crime. That structure was later demolished in 2003 to make room for the Brickyard Shopping Center, a collection of big box stores such as Target and Home Depot. Jazz great and civil rights activist Nina Simone first performed in Chicago on August 9, 1959 at the Playboy Jazz Festival, which was held at the air-conditioned Chicago Stadium, 1800 West Madison. This appears to have been based off the success of her single I Loves You Porgy and in support of the release of her first album. In the Billboard magazine ad from June 29, 1959, Simone is line-listed under the afternoon portion. General admission tickets were $1.10 each, which is just under $10 in today's money. This is a follow-up to a story I discussed in the earlier Chicago First episode released on May 23, 2020, about Marie Connolly Owens, the first female police officer in Chicago, and her efforts on behalf of children. Did you know that Illinois was the first state to regulate child labor laws? Sure, state laws aren't Chicago-specific, but working conditions for children in Chicago in the late 1800s and early 1900s helped bring this law about. A little more background on child labor around that time. Child labor was so commonplace that in 1900, 18% of all American workers were under the age of 16. This was largely because children were able to fit into tight spaces, operate small machinery, and would accept lower wages than an adult, which saved employers money. These children, many below the age of seven, worked 12-hour shifts for pennies a day, often getting injured, losing fingers and limbs, and some were even killed working these jobs. Many children developed tuberculosis and other respiratory diseases from the unclean conditions. The poor working-class immigrants accepted these dangerous jobs for their children because they often needed the extra income to survive. The child commonly missed out on getting an education while working. The pressure to change the law was pushed by women reformers who realized something needed to be done. Before then, business leaders, organized labor, and other influential groups expressed their concerns but never acted on the issues. Enter the Women of Whole House. 
1889, Jane Addams and Ellen Gates Starr founded Whole House in Chicago's poor industrial west side, the first settlement house in the United States. Their goal was to encourage educated women to share their knowledge with the less fortunate in the area, from basic skills to arts and literature. Adamson Starr, along with Julia Lathrop, Sophina Bispa Breckenridge, Grace and Edith Abbott, and Dr. Alice Hamilton worked tirelessly to bring about change in Chicago. Under Adams' direction and with the support of wealthy society, Hull House became a neighborhood cultural center and a gathering place for planning social reform. Each resident coordinated projects to benefit children and families, working in conjunction with the National Women's Trade Union League, the Chicago Women's Club, the National Congress of Mothers, the Illinois Child Labor Committee, and the Consumers League. The women of Whole House publicized the problems of children and enlisted support from male legislators, school officials, and judges. They promoted education for children instead of working and voiced their opinions to anyone who would listen. The group and other reformers came together to focus on the family structure with the belief that if a child was neglected or abused, it would not only be an injustice but would endanger the future of the country. The women of Whole House proposed laws to get children out of factories and into schools and set up recreational areas and educational programs. On May 15, 1903, Illinois established an eight-hour workday limit and a 48-hour workweek limit for children. Employed children also were required to bring a statement of classroom attendance from school authorities in order to be allowed to work. Jane Addams went on to promote peace during World War I, Touring, warring nations, and giving speeches, Adams helped found the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom in 1919, serving as its president until 1929 and honorary president until her death in 1935. She was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for her efforts in 1931, the first American woman to receive the award. The Jane Addams Memorial Tollway in Chicago was dedicated in 2007 for the founder of Hull House and is the first Chicago-area interstate to be named for a woman. It takes drivers near Adams' hometown of Cedarville, Illinois, and Rockford, Illinois, where Adams studied at what is now Rockford College. The Jane Addams Hull House Museum resides at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I will be posting pictures, ads, and other research materials from this week's episode on the Chicago History Podcast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. Make sure you follow for more Chicago History Podcast goodness. Please let me know if you have any questions about anything discussed. Also, if you have a topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast, send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. As always, like, subscribe, and kindly review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. It helps us get the word out and reach new history fans and fans of Chicago. Get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe. Thanks for listening.